Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. Writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a segment about semantic bleaching with words like literally and awesome, and a segment about using video games to learn a new language. Today, we're going to talk about a totally awesome topic, semantic bleaching. This has nothing to do with words in our language turning white. Instead, it has to do with how the meaning of words can fade over time, just like a colorful shirt fades after it's been washed too many times. We've talked many times on the podcast about how our language is constantly evolving. New words appear. Think of uber, adulting, turnt, or bay. Others drop out of favor like foxy or groovy. Others fall completely out of use. When's the last time you heard someone talk about a bodkin or a camelopard, for example? By the way, a bodkin is what we used to call a knife, and a camelopard was a giraffe. Some of these changes can seem a bit random, and others fall into patterns. For example, sometimes the literal sense of a word develops a figurative use. The verb to milk originally meant to draw milk from a cow or other animal. Over time, the meaning extended, and now you can milk someone for anything valuable, usually through trickery or extortion. To escalate once meant simply to travel up an escalator. Now it refers to an increase in intensity or scope. For example, when you say something like, well, that situation sure escalated quickly. Another predictable way that words change is by having their scope of meaning narrow. For example, back when Old English was spoken, meat referred to any type of food. Over time, the meaning narrowed, and today, of course, we use meat to refer only to the flesh of animals. Liquor used to mean a liquid. Now it refers almost exclusively to alcoholic drinks like beer, wine, and whiskey. Words also change by having their meaning broaden. For example, the word embargo originally referred to an order prohibiting ships from entering or leaving a port. The word now can refer to any sort of stoppage or prohibition. You could say you're putting an embargo on listening to any more Grammar Girl podcasts until you finish your homework, for example. Another pattern of language change we're going to focus on today is called semantic bleaching. That occurs when the specific, often powerful, meaning of a word becomes diluted over time through repetition and overuse. For example, the original meaning of the word awesome was full of awe, profoundly reverential. Something awesome might be the peak of a snow-covered mountain breaking through the clouds, the vastness of the ocean, or the spread of stars above you on a clear night. But then we had to go and start calling everything awesome. Our new shoes are awesome. This one kind of shampoo is awesome. The new Heath Caramel Brownie Blizzard from Dairy Queen is awesome. I mean, it actually is awesome, but you get my point. Through overuse, the word has lost its potency. No one expects a pair of shoes to fill you with awe. Awesome is now just a general word that means nifty or cool. Another example of semantic bleaching is literally. Every now and then we use this word the way it was intended to indicate that what we're saying is absolutely true. If you said that you got hit on the head by hail that was literally the size of golf balls, 
then the hail should have been 1.68 inches in diameter. But more often, we simply mean that the hail pellets were pretty big. We're using the word literally to intensify what we're saying, not to label it as factual. Terrible and horrible have also been weakened by semantic bleaching. Terrible originally meant to inspire great fear or dread. Horrible meant extremely repulsive to the senses or feelings. Dreadful, hideous, shocking. We still use these words to mean those things, but we also say, my lunch was horrible, or that tuna salad was terrible. We may not have liked the tuna, but did it really inspire great fear or dread? Probably not. We're using terrible, but with a faded meaning of yucky or unpleasant. So why do we insist on overusing words to the point that they lose their meaning? Why don't we speak more precisely? Why don't we say that our tuna salad has a putrid odor rather than just, this tuna salad is horrible? In part, it's because we're lazy. Or as linguist Danka Minkova puts it, most of us, quote, have no particular talent for words, unquote. We take the easy route in speech and writing. We default to generalizations and commonly used words rather than making the mental effort to say precisely what we mean. Is semantic bleaching bad? On the one hand, yes, using a word like awesome to describe everything from a sunset to a stick of gum can narrow the rainbow of ways you can express yourself to one single color. Using more specific words, speaking of a radiant sunset or a tangy piece of gum, could give your speech more vibrancy and perhaps enrich your experience of life itself. On the other hand, semantic bleaching isn't bad or good. It simply is. It's one of the predictable ways that we've observed language to change ever since people have been observing changes in language. It's kind of like the tide. It erases sandcastles, but also deposits a bounty of treasures on the shore that you can build with the next day. In short, whether it's awesome or terrible, semantic bleaching is literally here to stay. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Next, I have a fascinating piece about using video games to learn a foreign language. It's written by Christopher Timothy McGurk of the University of Central Lancashire. So when I get to the part that says my research, remember that's actually Christopher's research. Online gaming has become a concern for some parents in the past few years, and there are also worries children might become addicted with negative effects on their socialization. And this has led some parents to think of creative ways to reduce gaming, including rationing the time children spend online. It's important to remember, though, that not all research into children playing video games paints a bleak picture. In fact, there's a growing body of research that suggests such worries might be unfounded and that gaming could be an incredibly useful educational tool which might actually make children more sociable, not less. In the same way that many schools use other forms of technology to get students more excited about learning, such as interactive whiteboards and tablets, both of which seem popular with students, video games might also offer similar benefits. Language learning in particular seems a perfect place to try gamified classes. 
Some schools are already using Minecraft in French classes. The idea is that students work together to build a learning zone in the Minecraft space, finding new words to help them along the way. Indeed, James Paul G., a leading researcher in the area of video games as language learning tools, suggests that role-playing games, such as the Elder Scrolls series or World of Warcraft, offer an ideal learning space for what he calls at-risk learners. In theory, there's just enough challenge, just enough support, just enough room for players to be themselves, and possibly more important, students have just enough ownership of the learning process. At-risk learners, by G's definition, could be anyone. They may be learners with special educational needs, but equally, they may also simply be learners who feel more vulnerable in a language classroom. Learning a language, after all, is a huge departure from some students' comfort zones. Students, for example, can get nervous and inhibited in a classroom. Language learning researchers describe this as an affective filter. A fear of making a mistake and losing face literally affects how far a student joins in the class. My research specifically looks at language learning, a subject area that certainly in the UK appears to be one that students seem to endure rather than necessarily enjoy. It builds on the ideas of Philip Hubbard, a leading researcher in the field of using technology to enhance language learning. He's previously suggested that while technology in classrooms is seen as useful, there's no strategy for using it, and this is where my research comes in. What I'm aiming to do is find that strategy and try to answer the following questions. How video games might help, why some students might prefer playing a video game to being in class, and what areas of language learning a teacher could improve with this technology. Video games, especially massive multiplayer online role-playing games, MMOs, such as World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy XIV, and RuneScape tend to cut through all the reasons for someone to be self-conscious. Players have to communicate in real time, with no opportunity to agonize over what to say or how to speak perfectly. This real-time aspect of MMOs may sound terrifying for someone learning a language. But actually, a highly useful gamification study by Ian Glover, a lecturer in technology-enhanced learning at Sheffield Hallam University, found that learners in general have a high level of extrinsic motivation when they game. In other words, students really want to chase leveling up, bonuses, and rewards, which they define as excelling within a gaming space. As a result, they may force themselves to become better at communicating so they can level up quicker. And this drive might go deeper still. Gamers are often encouraged to repeat levels several times so they can perform better. This is what the prominent motivation researcher Zoltan Dornier describes as direct motivational currents. The concept implies that motivation for some students may be driven entirely by their personal view of what success entails. This is important because if the commonly held theory that many students learn languages to tick a box needed for graduation is correct, then they may only be motivated to study just enough to pass. On the other hand, if success in the language classroom is aligned with success in a gaming space, then harnessing this drive may be a powerful way to foster continued interest in language learning and developing language skills. 
Video games may also have the potential to help learners develop more complex social skills. This view is inspired by the Russian philosopher Mikhail Bakhtin, who believed that truly meaningful communication came from negotiating cultural differences and finding solutions. This happens a lot in video games as players try to find their roles, but more significant is what the negotiations seem to lead to—relatedness, finding a shared meaning and a sense of belonging. A study conducted in Japan found that players seem to play MMOs mainly for the purpose of forming social connections. So will schools of the future all be learning languages through gaming? Well, this remains to be seen, but given that the evidence suggests gaming can encourage social skills and teamwork, as well as incredible scope to share ideas and build knowledge, there may be a good argument for ditching the textbooks and logging into another world for a while. That segment was written by Christopher Timothy McGurk, a lecturer in English as a Foreign Language at the University of Central Lancashire. It was originally published on The Conversation and is included here through a Creative Commons license. Finally, I have a familect story about a word Jim's family uses to keep secrets about food. Hi, Mignon. This is Jim Vdefer in Phoenix. My familect, Cookinelli's comes from my mother's kitchen, in a sense. It's a, a word that I assume she made up and, interestingly, has no actual meaning other than maybe wait and see. In later years, I've wondered what sort of dialect it may have come from, but with little success. My mom was raised in Erie, PA, from German and Irish parents, and my dad was born in what I can only call deep central PA, home to a mixture of Dutch and Germans with towns like drifting and hide and grass flat. I don't think we ever heard our dad use the term, but it sure sounds like the sort of thing they'd say in an area where a town spelled D-U-B-O-I-S would be pronounced Dubois. The word Gucanelli's was typically used when we kids wanted to know what's for dessert. And if my mom hadn't decided or was busy and just didn't feel like humoring us, she'd call out in a sort of delightfully mystery tone, Cookinelli's. In other words, you'll see when the time comes. Eventually, it became our go-to word for whenever we didn't feel like telling the others what we were having for dinner, dessert, or even what we were snacking on. Cookinelli's. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. That's a great story. And Pennsylvania is a region known for having an interesting dialect. It's where some people call sprinkles like you put on ice cream, jimmies. Call a rubber band a gum band? and say yins, like other people say you guys or y'all. If you want to hear your familect story on the show, the story of a word your family and only your family uses, leave a voicemail like Jim did at 83-321-4-GIRL. And be sure to tell me the story, because that's always the best part. I'm Mignon Fogarty, Grammar Girl and author of the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. You can find me at the home of my podcast network, quickanddirtytips.com, where you can also find all the other great Quick and Dirty Tips hosts. Just today, I was reading a fabulous article by the Nutrition Diva comparing the Beyond Meat Burger and Impossible Burger to a regular hamburger. And thanks to my audio producer, Nathan Sims. That's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs>